All right, let's open up our Bibles, if you would, please, to Matthew chapter 14. And also, if you want to put a little marker over in Mark, a marker in Mark, there you go, a marker in Mark chapter 6. We'll be looking at two passages of the scripture this morning, and in your books, we are on lesson number 67. All right, let's start in a word of prayer then. Father, grant that we would hear your word this morning with the uttermost reverence. May we receive it with the uttermost meekness. May we mingle it with faith and may it accomplish that in us which you wish for it to accomplish, the good work for which you have sent it. Father, help me to be hidden behind the words and the works of the Lord Jesus Christ and uh, teach us by thy Holy Spirit, for we pray in Jesus' name, amen. Well, once again, as I was studying for this particular lesson, I was made aware of the advantage that we have uh, by studying the Lord's life in chronological order, as we are doing step by step, some weeks in one gospel and some weeks in another gospel and some weeks in multiple gospels. But if you remember last week, we ended the ordination sermon, which the Lord spoke to his 12 apostles right before he sent them out on their first mission venture in pairs without him. And where was that ordination sermon found? What was its address? Matthew chapter 10. And now this morning, where do we find ourselves? We skipped 11, 12, 13. Actually, in our chronological study, we have already studied Matthew 11, 12, and 13. Now we find ourselves jumping over to Matthew 14. And that is very interesting, and this is something we would miss if we didn't study the Lord's life chronologically. But remember what he had just been telling his men and all future disciples down throughout the rest of church history and on into the tribulation period, he was telling them that they should not fear what men might do to them because the fear of man brings what? A snare, Proverbs 29, 25. We shouldn't fear what men might think of us. We shouldn't fear what men might do to us and consequently hold our tongue and not speak out for the Lord Jesus Christ and the salvation that he offers. Rather, the Lord said, we are to fear whom? God, because he alone has the power and ability to destroy both the body and the soul. The fear of God is the fear, really, that crosses out, cancels out all other fears. And that's what he had just been talking about. Now, after the apostles had gone out, he gave them that ordination sermon and then sent them out. After they had gone out in pairs, the Lord Jesus was alone. You can read this in uh, Matthew 14, 12. You'll see he was there alone. And when he was there alone, he received word of the death of a man who illustrates for us the very truth that he had just been speaking about, not fearing man, not fearing organized religion or um, religious rulers or even relatives he learned of the death of John the Baptist. Because John did fear God above man, 
he boldly, very boldly and brazenly proclaimed the truth before the greatest opposition. Remember back in Matthew 2, I think it was, where he called the religious rulers of his day, the scribes and the Pharisees, a generation of what? Vipers. That took a lot of nerve. They had power. And he told them point blank that they needed to repent of their sins of hypocrisy and self-righteousness. And then likewise, as we're going to learn in our story this morning, he boldly proclaimed the truth before the political ruler, one of the political rulers of his day, who was Herod Antipas. So he, he was bold before organized religion and bold before the rulers. Um, Herod Antipas, who we'll be talking a lot about this morning, was living in sin with his brother's wife. And uh, John the Baptist had the boldness to point out that sin and tell him to repent of it. So he becomes, you see, the immediate illustration for us and for the Lord's apostles of the principles of truth that Jesus had just taught. And we would have missed that if we were not studying his life chronologically. John the Baptist knew no fear of any man because he knew God alone is to be feared. So in today's lesson, we're going to have the story of the fearless end of the herald. Remember, he's the herald of the king. He was the ambassador to the king, the king of kings, the Lord Jesus Christ. He was that voice crying in the wilderness that the Messiah was coming. On the other hand, however, also in today's lesson, we have an illustration of what happens to a man when he does allow the fear of man to ensnare him, when he does permit the fear of people to dominate over his fear of God. And this illustration is given to us in the Tetrarch of Galilee, who is, who was, this man, Herod Antipas. He uh, is the one who had John the Baptist beheaded. Herod, we're going to find as we look at this story, feared just about everything and everyone except God. He feared Jesus. He didn't know that Jesus was God, but he feared Jesus thinking that he was John the Baptist resurrected. And he feared John the Baptist. He feared John the Baptist when he was alive, and he even feared John the Baptist when he was dead because he thought that Jesus was John resurrected who'd come back to haunt him. He also feared his first wife's father, his first father-in-law, and we'll see why he feared him. He feared also his own reputation with his wife, Herodias, his second wife, and, uh, and he feared his uh, reputation before his peers. He feared a rebellion by the people over whom he ruled, the Jewish people up in Galilee. And he also feared the Roman emperor at that time, who was Emperor Caligula, who might replace him with someone in greater favor with Rome. And actually, he had a right fear for that because Caligula, Caligula did replace him eventually, and we'll see why. But anyway, because he did not reverentially fear God, all of these other fears ensnared him. Therefore, Herod Antipas lost not only the joy and the peace that he could have had during this earthly life. He was a very privileged man because he met the Lord Jesus Christ. He not only met and talked many times with John the Baptist, but he also met the Lord Jesus Christ, lived during the time when Christ walked this earth. He missed all the joy, peace, and blessings which could have been his. 
But that's just part of it. He also lost both body and soul eternally, which is far the far greater loss. So we have not only the fearless end of the herald, John the Baptist, but we're going to be looking at the fearful end of Herod in our lesson this morning, which is entitled, The Fears and Follies of Herod. You can see we have six subsections. I won't list those because you can see them on your outline, but as we are going to be looking at those six subsections, we are going to think that we are um, um, watching one of television's most disgusting and despicable soap operas. Now, I hope that you ladies have better things to do with your lives and better ways to redeem your life wisely for the Lord Jesus Christ than to watch those disgusting, stupid soap operas. Please don't have the TV on during the day unless you want to watch the news or the cooking channel or something. But don't waste your time on those. But you will, th- and you don't need to because you can study the Bible and have more exciting soap opera stories in the Bible than you could ever get on television. But we're going to um, be looking at a story of in- incestuous adultery, divorce, political intrigue, jealousy, God- godly boldness, a woman's spite, cold-hearted revenge, lewdness, lust, motherly schemes at a daughter's expense, pride, pride before peers, and death by decapitation of the most innocent. It's a story of how godless fear can cause deception and destruction and death. It's a story of tragedy for the Herods, yet it is one of ultimate triumph for the herald. When we read of John being beheaded, don't think that he was the loser in this story because he was the victor by by far. All right, so now we're going to read, I'm going to read two passages because one has a little more that the other one doesn't. Um, And I want to read both of them because then we get the complete story. So look with me at Matthew 14. We'll begin with verse 1 of Matthew 14. And then we'll move over to Mark 6. All right, starting at Matthew uh, 14.1, it says, At that time, Herod the Tetrarch heard of the fame of Jesus and said unto his servants, This is John the Baptist. He is risen from the dead, and therefore mighty works do show forth themselves in him. For Herod had laid hold on John and bound him and put him in prison for Herodias' sake, his brother Philip's wife. For John said unto him, It is not lawful for thee to have her. And when he would have put him to death, when Herod would have put John to death, he feared the multitude because they counted him as a prophet. But when Herod's birthday was kept, the daughter of Herodias danced before them and pleased Herod. Whereupon he promised with an oath to give her whatsoever she would ask. And she, being before instructed of her mother, said, Give me here John Baptist's head in a charger. And the king was sorry. Nevertheless, for the oath's sake, and them which sat with him at meat, he commanded it, John's head, to be given her. And he sent and beheaded John in the prison. And his head was brought in a charger and given to the damsel, and she brought it to her mother. And his, this is speaking of John the Baptist's disciples, came 
and took up the body and buried it and went and told Jesus. And then you'll see next week what, you know, when Jesus heard of it, he departed alone to be alone and, um, and pray. All right, now let's turn over and look at Mark 6. And Mark 6 will begin at verse 14. It says, And King Herod heard of him, speaking of Jesus. He heard of Jesus. For his name was spread abroad, and he said that John the Baptist was risen from the dead, and therefore mighty works do show forth themselves in him. Others said that it is Elias or Elijah, and others said that it is a prophet or as one of the prophets. By the way, over in Luke 9, we have three verses that give us a short version of everything we're reading here in Matthew and Mark. But Luke does tell us that people were speculating also that it was John resurrected from the dead, that Jesus was John resurrected. And they were predicting or saying that Jesus was one of the prophets resurrected. And we didn't read that exactly in um, Matthew and, and Mark. It only sounds like... Herod came up with that idea, but many people were also thinking that Jesus was a prophet or John resurrected from the dead. So apparently they believed in uh, reincarnation, a lot of them. All right, where was I? Mm, 16, verse 16. But when Herod heard thereof, he said, it is John whom I beheaded. He is risen from the dead. For Herod himself had sent forth and laid hold upon John and bound him in prison for Herodias's sake, his brother Philip's wife, for he had married her. For John had said unto Herod, It is not lawful for thee to have thy brother's wife. Therefore Herodias had a quarrel against him and would have killed him, but she could not. For Herod, her husband, feared John, knowing that he was a just man and unholy meaning and unholy man as well, and observed him. And when he heard him, he did many things and heard him gladly. And when a convenient day was come that Herod on his birthday made a supper to his lords, high captains, and chief estates of Galilee, and when the daughter of the said Herodias came in and danced and pleased Herod and them that sat with him, the king said unto the damsel, Ask, me of, uh, ask of me whatsoever Thou wilt, and I will give it thee. And he swear unto her, Whatsoever thou shalt ask of me, I will give it thee unto the half of my kingdom. That is making a very foolish vow, is it not? And she went forth and said unto her mother, What shall I ask? And she, her mother, said, The head of John the Baptist. And she came in straightway with haste unto the king and asked, saying, I will that thou give me by and by in a charger the head of John the Baptist. And the king was exceeding sorry. Yet for his oath's sake and for the sakes which sat with him, he would not reject her. And immediately the king sent an executioner and commanded his head to be brought. And he went and beheaded him in the prison and brought his head in a charger and gave it to the damsel. And the damsel gave it to her mother. And when his disciples, John's disciples, heard of it, they came and took up his corpse and laid it in a tomb. All right. First thing we learn is that news about Jesus finally penetrated into the palace of Herod Antipas, who was a tetrarch, meaning one for he had, he ruled over one fourth of Palestine. 
Herod Antipas lived in Tiberias, which was on the southwest shore of the Sea of Galilee. Now, doesn't it seem a little bit strange to you that we are at the end of the Lord Jesus Christ's second year of ministry? His public ministry was three and a half years long. We are near the end of his second year. And now, for the first time, Herod Antipas, who is the Tetrarch of Galilee, just now is hearing about him. Is that not a little bit strange? <laughs> well, Bible commentaries, uh, commentators speculate about why this is. Some say it is because he had been absent in Rome, which was true for a while. It could, that's where he met his brother Philip's wife and married her. It could be because he had been battling King Eratos, who was his first wife's father, and we'll get into that, but his first father-in-law was a Nabataean Arabian king whose city where he dwelt was Petra. How many of you have heard of Petra? That's where his father-in-law lived. He was a king. And if you've seen Indiana Jones, I think it was the Raiders of the Lost Ark uh, took place in Petra. Anyway, that was his first father-in-law, and he was at war with him because he put away the king's daughter, the princess, and that made the father very mad, so he went to war against Herod Antipas. So it could be he hadn't heard about Jesus because he was so busy in this war that he was having, or it could be he had not heard about Jesus until now because he was so preoccupied with all of his building activities. He enjoyed building or, as his, the historian Josephus tells us, perhaps it was because of his personal love of ease and comfort and pleasure, which left him little or no room or interest in Jewish civil affairs you know, or religious affairs. He was the ruler over the Galilean Jews, but he really didn't care too much about what was going on with them. He was too engaged in his own pleasure, life of ease and comfort. Another possible reason Herod might not have previously heard about Jesus rests in the fact that Herod also lived much of his year, not in Tiberias on the Sea of Galilee, but he lived much of his year in his massive fortress, fortress palace, which was not located in Galilee. It wasn't even located down in the southern province of Judah. It was actually over to the east of the sea, the Dead Sea. It was about seven miles to the east of the Dead Sea, the north side of the Dead Sea. Um, it was a fortress palace that his father, Herod the Great, had built. It was called Machairus. And this is where John the Baptist was imprisoned, by the way, in the deep, dark dungeon of that fortress palace called Machairus. It was a very remote palace, which stood 3,500 feet above sea level, and it was on a rocky ridge that was only accessible from one side. So that's why it was a fortress. It would be hard to attack. <clears throat> so it's not surprising that Herod would not have heard about Jesus in such a place as Machairus. We know also, from what I read to you in Mark's account, we know that Herod Antipas did talk a lot to his prisoner, John the Baptist. He would go down to that dark prison cell, which they archaeologists have uncovered, and yes, indeed, there was this deep down into that rocky ridge of the mountain was a prison, a dungeon with no natural light, stale air, 
and chains against the wall. That was where John the Baptist was imprisoned for one year before he was beheaded. But Herod would go down into that prison, and on many occasions he would converse, he would talk with John the Baptist. So others have said, well, why didn't John the Baptist tell him of Jesus? Well, it could be that, uh, what was John's message? And remember, John was the last Old Testament prophet. He's not a New Testament guy. He's an Old Testament prophet. His message was, you know, not that Jesus had died and was buried and resurrected. His message was, repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. So he probably said over and over again to Herod, repent, repent, repent. And before Herod would repent, I mean, Herod had to repent first before John would share with him the fact that the Messiah had come, that Christ had come, you know. So I would imagine that for one reason he didn't tell him about Jesus because he wanted him to repent first, but also perhaps he was trying to protect Jesus. He may have said the Christ is here, the Messiah is here, but didn't want to give him his name so as to protect him from possible harm or imprisonment like he was in prison. Well, who exactly was Herod Antipas? As I just mentioned, he was one of the sons of Herod the Great, who was the most infamous of all of the Herods, that whole wicked dynasty of the Herods. Now, it is easy for us to get the Herods confused because there are so many of them in not only the gospel accounts, but also over in the book of Acts. It's easy for us to get them confused. They also like to double up on names. For example, there was Herod Antipater I, and there was Herod Antipater II, and there was Herod Agrippa I, and there was Herod Agrippa II, and then there was one Philip, and another brother was named Philip II. So, I mean, it gets really confusing. And they were all Herods. And you say, who is who? Well, Herod, for one thing, isn't a name. It's not a proper name. Herod was just a, a title, a royal title like calling somebody king. It actually meant heroic. And if there was one thing these people were, these kings and tetrarchs were not, was heroic. None of them were heroic at all. But that, that was what the title, can you imagine Herod the Great? He gave, I'm sure he gave himself that name. It meant heroic the great one. A real modest man. They were all egomaniacs. They were just like Alexander the Great. What a name to give. It would be like Catherine the Great, <laughs> except I can't take that. It's already been taken. <laughs> there was a Catherine the Great. <laughs> but uh, this, this was one of the most, as far as I'm concerned, this was one of the most despicable dynasties that history has ever known. And I say that there's been many despicable dynasties. We all know that. There's some existing today. But this one was more accountable because of the fact that they lived during the time when John the Baptist and Jesus Christ and the apostles were here upon earth. And to whom much is given, much is re required, you know. So they're even, they're more accountable, they're more despicable because of that. Now, Herod's illegal wife, Herodias, what do you think her name means? It means Mrs. Heroic. <laughs> We don't know her proper name. We have no idea what her real name was. But it was a Mr. Her Heroic married to Mrs. Heroic, Herod and Herodias. And uh, all right, back to Herod Antipas. Herod Antipas was one of the sons of Herod the Great. Herod the Great ruled as king of Judea from 37 B.C., 37 years before the birth of Christ, until 4 
A.D., four years after the birth of Christ. He was the Herod who had all the little boys two years of age and under slaughtered in Bethlehem after the wise men came to him and told him that they had come all the way from the east to see the king of the Jews. Herod the Great, this was Herod Antipas' father, was not a true Jew at all because he did not come from Jacob. Remember the twin brothers? Jacob and Esau, he did not descend from Jacob. From Jacob came the 12 tribes of Israel. From Jacob came the Jewish nation. Jacob's name was even changed to Israel. But Herod the Great was a descendant of Esau. And Esau was uh, the head of the Edomites. So Herod the Great was an Idumean. He was an Edomite. And he, because he wasn't a Jew, he tried in vain to win over the Jews, but they never saw him as anything but a usurper of the throne of David, who kept his throne by way of the strong arm of their hated oppressors, Rome. And there were many plots which were made to assassinate him, <clears throat> but they all failed. Now, Herod the Great had some nine or ten wives. Historians are a little... Uh, unsure about whether it was nine wives or ten wives. Either way, it's too many wives, isn't it? And he really thought it was not a good thing to be one of Herod the Great's wives because he thought little or nothing of killing them. He suspected everybody because there had been many assassination of plots against him. He was highly suspicious. Talk about living in fear. He was suspicious of everyone, including his very favorite wife, the one they say, the only one they say he ever really loved. was Her name was Mary Omni. And he had her assassinated because he suspected she was trying to take over his throne. While he was at it, he threw in his mother-in-law. So he killed her, and he also killed her mother. And he, he killed some of his sons when they got in the way of his plans. Herod the Great died a loathsome, incurable disease, a very painful, horrible, oozing, awful from a disease like that. And, but one of the last acts of his life was to issue a decree to have another one of his sons killed, a son by the name of Antipater. And we'll get back to that a little bit later. Herod Antipas, who we learn about in our lesson today, was one of this man's sons. He was one of his sons by his fourth wife. And obviously, he escaped being one of the sons who was assassinated. His mother, Herod Antipas' mother, was a Samaritan. So his father was Idumean, or an Edomite. So he was half Idumean, and he was half Samaritan. And so you know that he was particularly loathed by the Jewish people. They had no fondness of Herod Antipas whatsoever. And when he ordered the death of all of the members of the Sanhedrin council, which was the religious council that ruled over Israel, he ordered their deaths for having dared to challenge his authority, you know, to sit over Jewish people when he wasn't even Jewish. He did very little to win over their popularity. Can you imagine? I think he's the one who even, um, unless it was his father, it may have been him, but one of them robbed King David's grave which was held in high reverence by, by the Jewish people. So these guys, if they were trying to win over the Jewish people, they didn't go about it very wisely. Well, Herod Antipas was educated in Rome, along with his brother Archelaus and his half-brother Philip. 
After Herod the Great died in 4 AD, the Romans took his kingdom and they divided it among his three surviving or three of his surviving sons. Archelaus was given the southern provinces of Judea and Samaria. You remember Archelaus? Do you? We read about him a long time ago when we studied about the birth of Jesus Christ, or I should say um, after Jesus was in Egypt and Joseph and Mary were going to return because they heard that Herod the Great had died. Yay, got rid of him, 4 AD. And the reason they didn't come back to live in Bethlehem was because Archelaus, his son, was ruling down there. And they did, Joseph didn't want to live with Arch- Archelaus, was actually even worse than Herod Antipas, the one we're studying today. So instead of living under his reign, Joseph took Mary back up to Nazareth, where Herod Antipas was the ruler. He was given the northern kingdoms of Galilee and, um, not kingdoms, provinces of Galilee and Perea, and then their half-brother Philip was given the provinces of Iturea and Trachonitis. Now, Herod Antipas's first wife, we talked about her a little while ago, I don't know her name, but she was the daughter of this um, Arabian king who lived over in Petra. But after Herod met his brother Philip's wife, Herodias, Mrs. Heroic, <laughs> uh, she, who knows what she did to seduce him, but he, he really, he, he liked her. He had an adulterous affair with her, and then he put away his first wife. And when you were a wife of one of the Herods and you were put away, you were in danger of your life. So his first wife ran away, got away from him as soon as she could, and where do you think she went? Straight back to daddy, who was King Eratos and had quite a bit of power. And that infuriated her father, the king, that Herod had shamed her in this way, his precious daughter. So... He was furious, and he engaged Herod Antipas in a battle, which Herod lost. He was made mincemeat. His army was almost decimated, and his army consisted of Jewish people. Imagine all these men who lost their lives because he decided he he lusted for his brother's wife. All those men who lost their lives so needlessly, and all the widows and children that were left behind because of this man's lust. And he himself would have lost his life, most likely, if Rome hadn't intervened on his behalf and and saved him from certain death. Now, there are many similarities, this will be one of your homework questions this next week, between the Old Testament um, triad of Ahab, Jezebel, and Elijah with this New Testament triad of Herod, Herodias, and John the Baptist. Both of these trios involved wicked, weak kings, right? Wicked, weak kings and she-devil, cunning wives. And also, they both involved a godly, courageous prophet of God. Herodias was to Herod what Jezebel was to King Ahab. Both Ahab and Herod were wicked, selfish men. They were rulers, but they were wicked, selfish men. But in both cases, we can say that their wives outdid them when it came to evil. 
Both Jezebel and Herodias held deadly hatred in their hearts for God's spokesmen, for the prophets of God. Jezebel hated Elijah. Why? Because he had just eliminated her 400 prophets of Baal. She hated him. You know, when he did that up on Mount Carmel, showed how weak and and, and impotent they were and then had them all murdered. And he stood up pretty well against all those prophets of Baal, didn't he? But when Queen Jezebel (laughs) unleashed her fury, he ran. (laughs) Elijah ran for his life. Now, he was weary, granted. (laughs) But uh, he fared better than poor John the Baptist. Herodias hated John the Baptist like Jezebel hated um, Elijah. Herodias hated John because he dared to expose her adulterous and shameful incestuous relationship with her her husband's brother. And she sought to destroy him. And she was more successful than Jezebel because she did destroy John the Baptist, but not really, right? He only lost his body and just for a temporary time. But she was fearful that if her husband kept listening to John, he might, he might actually repent and put her away. And then she would lose all of her potential to become the queen. Her big thing was climbing the political scale, the, the ladder. She was not happy just being, see, Philip was sort of, he wasn't nearly, he was, he was much kinder than any of his brothers, which isn't to say much, <laughs> but he was, he was less aggressive. And when she met Herod, who was more aggressive, she thought, well, I'll climb the scale a little bit here. But she was after the queenship. She wanted to be queen like her, um, her grandfather. Her grandfather was Herod the Great. It gets really complicated. Um, she was married to two brothers whose father was Herod the Great. Herod the Great was her grandfather. It, it really is amazing. As I was studying this, I thought of all the A's. You know how I like to alliterate my lessons. I could have really had a humdinger of a lesson with all these A's. Listen to this. All these kings in, that we have with A's. We had King, well, Ahab. You know, And then there's the king, the Nabataean king, whose name is Eratos. It starts with an A. We have Antipater, one and two. We have Antipas. We have Alexander. We haven't talked about him yet. Aristobulus, Archelaus. <laughs> and there's... Um, ones and twos of all of those, and they all start with A's. So you can see why people get confused. Anyhow, with the ungodly heritage that Herodias had as her example, it's really no wonder that she turned out to be such a monster. If any of you think you've had dysfunctional families, if you think you came from a dysfunctional family, you haven't heard anything yet. I I don't think there's anybody that can compare with this family. She was the granddaughter of Herod the Great. Now, this terrific example of a grandfather, loving, kind grandfather, not only killed her great-grandmother, but her grandfather killed her grandmother. And um, her grandmother was Mary Omni. Remember, that was Herod the Great's uh, most favorite wife. That was her grandmother. So her grandfather killed her grandmother and her great-grandmother. And then her uncle Antipater wanted the throne of his father, so he devised this little plan where he would eliminate two of his brothers, and he was successful. Her uncle was successful in killing Aristobulus, one of his brothers, and the other brother, Alexander. Now, Aristobulus, who he eliminated, was Herodias' father, so her uncle killed her father. 
and I haven't even gotten to her brother yet. Wait till you hear about her brother. All right, so it's really no wonder that Herodias, oh, and by the way, Herod's last act before he died, Herod the Great's last act before he died, was to have Antipater killed. Because Antipater, well, Antipater sort of deserved to be killed because he had killed Aristobulus and Alexander, his own brothers. <laughs> so the last act of her grandfather's life was to kill one of her other uncles. So what a mess. It's no wonder that she knew absolutely nothing about love except the erotic kind of love. She, she knew nothing about love. And it's no wonder that she even abused the natural love that a mother should have for her own daughter, as we will see. Well, when word finally penetrated into Herod's palace about a miracle-working prophet named Jesus, as we saw, opinion was mixed as to who he was. Some thought he was Elijah. Remember, Elijah never died. He was taken up in a chariot of fire and a whirlwind. So they thought, well, it's Elijah come back. Some said, no, it's a prophet who's risen from the dead. Some said it was John who had risen from the dead. But Herod whose conscience was greatly troubling him over having killed John the Baptist, was convinced. He said, you, you're all wrong. I, well, you're not all wrong. Those of you who say it's John the Baptist resurrected, you're the white one, right ones. I know it is John. I know it's John whom I have beheaded. He's risen from the dead to torment me. Herod had feared John when he was alive. Why? Because he feared the multitudes who might rise up. If he killed John, he was afraid the Jewish people might rise up and kill him. He also feared him because, as it says in Matthew 14, 5, he counted him as a prophet, and he knew that he was a just and holy man. That's over in Mark six twenty. So he feared him alive. And all of this demonstrates to us the working of the human conscience. We really don't understand the conscience. Scientists don't really understand the conscience. They will try to tell us that it's just the product of society and culture, that uh, because we're raised with certain rules and regulations and our parents say, no, no, don't do this, and that, we, that we're um, conditioned to have a conscience. But how do you explain Adam and Eve? As soon as they sinned, had nothing to do with their society or their culture, as soon as they sinned, their conscience went to work, and they knew they had sinned, and they went to hide themselves. We don't understand the conscience. We can't see the conscience, uh, but we know it's there, just like wind. You cannot see the wind, but you can see the results of the wind. We know there is a conscience because it works on us. It's like a red warning light that goes off in our soul when we do something wrong. I remember stealing a dime from my grandmother, and my conscience bothered me. I couldn't sleep at night, and I finally had to go and tell her I had stolen a dime. She laughed. She thought it was so silly, but my conscience really bothered me. I had to get that off my chest, and I gave her back the dime. She gave it right back to me and said, don't be silly. If you need any money, tell me. <laughs> I don't know what I needed a dime for, but... Dr. Jerry Vine says that it could be compared to the walk, a walkie-talkie in our heart by which God speaks to us. That's kind of good. And I was reading an account by an Indian who said that he described the conscience as a three-cornered sharp thing. All right, Picture um, a three-cornered sharp thing in your heart. That when you... Okay, like a triangle, that's better. All right. Anyway, the three corners are sharp. And when you do something wrong, it turns... 
Ooh, and those sharp corners just rub against the inside of your heart, and it's painful. It hurts. But if you keep on sinning and it keeps on turning, pretty soon it'll wear down the little inside tissue of your heart, and it won't hurt so much anymore. That is called what? Searing your conscience. It is possible to ignore the conscience and to keep on ignoring it and eventually um, sear it. The Holy Spirit in Romans 2.15 says that the conscience is the inward witness of God in our hearts, which either accuses us or excuses us. And when our conscience tries to excuse us, it is because we are accused. When we try to come up with excuses for why we do things that we know are wrong, we're really trying to get rid of the accusation that we feel, aren't we? Since the conscience is man's inner witness of God, it's God's voice speaking to our hearts, it's very, it's critically important that we be sensitive to it, that we be tuned in to its frequency. It is possible, as I said, for a person to ignore the conscience for so long that they can hardly hear it speaking to them anymore. And we see this in our world today where people are excusing all kinds of sins over and over. And they're trying to get our young people and us to even get so comfortable with hearing about it that pretty soon it's like the frog in the, in the, you know, the proverbial frog in the boiling water that we just get desensitized to it. And pretty soon, we say, well, everybody's doing it. Those are good people. You know, we need to be accepting. We need to be tolerant. And that's what can happen. That's what happened to Pharaoh. He kept hardening his heart against his conscience. And pretty soon it was too late. Um, in 1 Timothy 4, 1 and 2 is where it tells us we can sear the conscience with a hot iron, with a continuous use of hot sin, and kill its voice altogether. Well, Herod had a conscience, as all men do, but he failed to take heed of it. He allowed the fear of men and the folly of sin to override the voice of his conscience. He was troubled because he knew he had killed a just and a holy man. He was also troubled because he knew that his marriage, his adulterous relationship with his brother's wife, the putting away of his own wife, the slaughter of so many innocent Jewish men against his first father-in-law, and his marriage to his brother's wife, he knew all of that violated God's law. You know, even if he really didn't care a flip for the Jewish law back in the... um, Old Testament, there's several passages that say it is an unclean thing to take your brother's wife. Even if he didn't care one flip about that law, God's law, he knew in his heart it was wrong. Just like children know because of a conscience when they have done wrong. So in his guilt-ridden mind, he decided that Jesus was none other than John the Baptist risen from the dead. Now, in the next verses in Matthew 14, verses 3 to 12, what we have is a flashback to the events that had led up to the, the arrest and the death of John. About a year before his death, John the Baptist had demonstrated fearless boldness by openly declaring the... Um, the marriage of Herod with Herodias as an unlawful sin. It, it actually tells us in the Greek, you don't see it in the English, but he kept on telling them. He, he would w- walk right up to the palace, stand outside the palace, and shake his long pointy finger, and he'd say, it is an unlawful thing for thee to have her. But rather than listening to God's voice in his soul, Herod, because I guess because his wife got so upset, 
he, he grabbed John and had him Im, imprisoned in this deep dungeon under the palace of, of Machiris. And John was there for a whole year. Remember the Lord's words in the ordination sermon? It costs a lot, doesn't it? It costs a great deal to tell the truth where it is not wanted. John feared only his God. It is a prime illustration of everything Jesus had just been telling us in the ordination sermon. John only feared God, and he cared also about the souls of men, even wicked men like the Herods and wicked women. Isn't that amazing? Most people would say, well, who cares about them? They're so wicked and evil, and they've just done nothing but murder and slaughter and care, not care about innocent people, etc. Let's just forget about them. But John cared about everybody's soul. Therefore, he spoke plainly to Herod Antipas about the wickedness of his life. Now, think about all the excuses John could have given for not sharing that truth with Herod. He could have said, you know, I need to keep silent because I'm endangering my life here. And if Herod kills me, what good am I going to be to God's people if I'm dead? Wouldn't you have tried to think of an excuse not to go to Herod and Herodias? I think I would have, definitely. But he didn't give any excuses. He didn't say that it would be impolite or useless to speak such things to these desensitized rulers of his land. He didn't even try to soft-pedal his message with smooth words, as so many preachers try to soften up the fact that man is depraved and that man is lost in his sins apart from Christ. Instead, John the Baptist, what an example he is for us. He told it like it is, regardless of the cost to him personally. It took courage, a great amount of courage to do this. If a man knows or a woman knows that another person is doing eternal injury to his own soul, by the the sin in which he is living, then it is that Christian's divine duty to tell him or her. So, to tell him about it. Because there are some who will listen. The vast majority will not. The vast majority do not want their sin to to be pointed out, and they will not like us, and they will mock us, and they will hate us. But there are some who will listen. Almost listened. He went further than many people do. Have to give him credit for that. The scripture tells us that he feared John. He actually feared a man of God, which is more than many people in our world today do. He uh, also knew that he was a just and a holy man. And furthermore, it says that he observed him. He enjoyed going down into the dungeon and watching John and listening to John. And it says he heard him. He did listen to him, and he even did many of the things. It says he did many things that John told him to do as a consequence of, of listening to him. It even tells us that Herod heard him gladly. But unfortunately for Herod Antipas, there was one thing that he would not do. He did some of the things. Maybe John gave him counsel about how to run the, the, the Galilee or something. But one thing Herod wouldn't do was repent of his sins. He would not give up his adulterous, incestuous sin with Herodias. You see, Herodias was not only his brother's wife. She was also his niece. Did I tell you that? Yeah, she was his niece. She was another brother's daughter. You know, her grandfather was his father. It's like, I'm my own grandma, isn't there? (laughs) Herod Antipas made the fatal 
mistake of taking Herodias instead of heaven. Oh, and how many people do that today? They'd rather have their sin for a season than have the Savior. He chose sin over the Savior. Very bad choice. Uh, well, over in Mark six nineteen, it tells us that Herodias was so enraged by John's denunciation that she herself would have killed him, but she couldn't. The reason she couldn't is because her husband feared John. It's interesting to realize that although John was the one who was imprisoned, it was really Herod who was afraid. Herod was the one who was held prisoner to his fears and to his, his sins. But Herod's conscience was still, it wasn't totally seared yet. His conscience was still trying to get through to him. It had not yet been completely silenced as his wicked father's had been. There was still something tugging at his soul, I believe, and I think that's why he would go down to John and listen to him and talk to him, gladly listen to him. But the problem was that when he would come back up out of that dungeon, he would come right back into the comfort and ease and the lust of his situation there in the palace. And like many church people who hear a good sermon and leave church five minutes later, they're out in the world again, and they've forgotten everything that they had just been convicted about. And that's exactly what would happen to, to Herod. On the other hand, Herodias was one of the most wicked women who has ever been mentioned in the scripture. She's right up there, as we said, along with Jezebel and Athaliah. Remember Queen Athaliah? She had all of her children killed and all of her grandchildren killed. And only one escaped. Yep. Wicked, wicked women. It's obvious that Herodias' conscience had been seared long ago. Maybe when she saw her grandfather kill her grandmother. Who knows? I mean, just, it's, it's hard not to feel sorry for this woman. But she had no desire whatsoever to listen to John the Baptist. She only longed for revenge. She only desired to be done with him and done with his interfering God. And when someone has clearly chosen the path that they will take and are determined to have their own way in life rather than submit to any kind of divine authority, they will immensely hate the one who tries to interfere with them or, or change them. They're totally irritated by opposition, even if they know the one opposing them is speaking the truth. Most of the Old Testament prophets, you know, were highly despised by the people. Isaiah, Jeremiah, all the rest. I mean, they, they were very unpopular with their own people. Why? Because they told the truth. Have you noticed that most people do not like to hear the truth? Jesus forewarned his followers in the ordination sermon of this very thing. He never promised popularity to the Christian. In fact, he said, woe unto you when all men speak well of you. We should be alert. That should be a little red flag uh, when any supposed teacher or Bible author or preacher of God is well spoken of by everybody out there in the world. There's obviously something wrong with his message because the truth about sin and judgment and hell and repentance brings animosity, as it did with Herodias. But since her husband feared John and he feared the multitude which might revolt if he did kill John, she came up, she was cunning, 
She devised this little deceitful plan to do away with John once and for all. She didn't care that in this plan of hers, she might be endangering her husband with the people. They might have risen. I don't know why they didn't when he did behead John, why they didn't. I guess the people became indifferent too. But she didn't care if she was endangering her husband with the people. She didn't care that she thrust her own young daughter, teenage daughter, into a public display of sexual provocation and caused a stepfather to actually lust for his own stepdaughter, who was also his great niece, by the way. And she didn't care if she was um, thrusting her daughter in a situation with all these other lustful men and creating a pedophilia type of situation, which is, by the way, rampant in our world today. Sick. Isn't it sick? She didn't care that she lived in an incestuous relationship with her first husband's uh, brother. who she only divorced for political gain. She didn't care about her first husband. She didn't care about her second husband. She just wanted to be Mrs. Queen. She didn't care that she used her daughter as an accomplice to murder. You imagine? Do not use Herodias as your example. For motherhood. And you laugh. But you know how many mothers I've seen dress their little daughters up? to show off their cute little figures or put them in front of big crowds of men and women to do all these body thrusts and dancing things. And, Doing that is like being a Herodias. You need to dress your, da- dress your daughters and your granddaughters. If you have a battle all the way out the front door, there were times when we absolutely said you are not leaving the house in that outfit and it was warfare but we won and both of my daughters have actually said to me thank you mom thank you dad that you did not let us go out in those times when we wanted to be popular with our peers because we look like them we need to take a strong stand on that you know men are visual we got to get that through our heads ladies they are visual and there's a lot of predators out there if anything, dress your children from head to toe, your, even your young boys nowadays. <sighs> anyway, like Jezebel with Naboth, remember her husband Ahab wanted the vineyard of Naboth, and she didn't care a flip that she had an innocent, godly man killed. Uh, same thing with Herodias. She only cared about what she wanted. She didn't like it when her husband listened to John. She didn't like it when she saw her husband come up from the dungeon with a troubled countenance. And she feared that one day he might indeed put her away. She knew that her first husband would never take her back again. So then she would really be out. She, she would lose not only uh, her position as Mrs. Tetrarch, she would become Mrs. Nobody. And she did become Mrs. Nobody. She desperately wanted the voice of God to be silenced forever in her life and in her husband's life. And she got her way. She did get her way. When John was silenced, the voice of God in Herod's palace was silenced forever. We will see that in a minute. So how did she trap her husband so that he was ensnared into beheading John? Well, she used two of Satan's greatest tools. She used pride. Well, first of all, passion. And then she used pride. Herodias was so full of hate and immorality and the desire for vengeance 
for the rebuke that she had received from the Baptist that she felt no guilt about using her daughter Salome. We do know the daughter's name. I don't know from where, but probably from history, that her name was Salome. She used her own daughter to carry out her wicked plan by having um, Herod's passion inflamed with the performance of a lewd dance, a provocative lewd dance by her own daughter and his stepdaughter and his niece and in front of all his male guests. And this horrible, wicked woman, mother, wife, was... uh, so selfish and so immoral that she was willing to sacrifice her daughter's modesty to gain her own evil end. Now, they had a birthday party. What they did is it was Herod's birthday, and so they threw a big birthday party. And it wasn't just with balloons and cake. (laughs) It was like some of these fraternity parties that are going on on some of our college campuses. Back in those days, the Jews hated pagan birthday parties. The pagans, the Romans, put on elaborate uh, they actually turned into big drunken orgies. They would they would purposely bring in exotic dancers, like you know they they hire strippers to jump out of cakes at these fraternity parties and things. These were big big um, stag parties they call them, and and uh, they would bring in these dancers for the purpose of then after they got drunk and everything engaging in sexual indulgence with them. It wasn't something that the royal family was ever to do. It was very awful on Herod's part that he let his, his daughter, stepdaughter, do this. This was not something the royal family would engage in. And verse 6 tells us that Herod was pleased with Salome's dancing, which literally means that he was sexually aroused. He was so drunk... He was so full of lust that he made a stupid promise, a foolish promise before everyone, before all of his male friends, to give her whatever she asked, even up to the half of his kingdom. And this, of course, is exactly what his plotting wife had figured would happen. Maybe that's how she got him. Maybe she did some provocative dance for him at one point in time and got him. That's how she stole him from his first wife. She knew her husband's passion, and she knew how that she could get his lust to conquer over his logic. So he took, um, well, remember, too, that in, um, in allowing his lust to conquer over his logic, he had endangered his entire army and even his own life because he took that stupid risk with his powerful Arabian father-in-law. So when young Salome, who was just a teenager, maybe 15, 16 17 years old, uh, when she was given her choice about whatever, she, you know, she could have anything up to half of the kingdom, she went before her mother. Well, actually, it says before her mother had instructed her beforehand what she was to ask. She knew what her husband would do. And she said, tell him you want John the Baptist's head on a charger. Do you know what a charger is? Yes, I went and bought some chargers for Christmas. They're, they're a plate that you put under your plate, your dining plate. And I remember when my husband said, what are these things? What do we need these things for? And I said, that's a charger. It's called a charger. I was trying to t- teach him. And now I can, I, this week I thought, oh, I can tell him it's biblical. This <laughs> 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 didn't serve a very nice purpose here. Mm. Anyway, she wanted the Baptist's head on a charger. That was really a compliment to John that his head was worth half of Herod's kingdom, wasn't it? 
And notice in all of this, if you want to reread it on your own, but it does say that uh, all of this happened quickly, 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 because Herodias didn't want to give Herod time to do what? To sober up. She didn't want to give him time to sober up and think through what he was about to do. She didn't want time for his conscience to begin working on him again. So she forced his hand before all of his guests by requesting that John's head be given immediately. And this, then, is where the second human attribute Herodias was counting on took over. She'd won with the passion, and now she was going to use pride. Verse 9 tells us that, he was, that Herod was sorry. And over in Mark's account, what did it say? He was exceeding sorry. He, even in his drunken state, he realized that he had been trapped by his own passion. But now he was further ensnared by Herodias's plan, by way of his pride. Now his pride came into play. It says, nevertheless, even though he was exceeding sorry, it says, nevertheless, for the oath's sake and them which sat with him at meat, he commanded it to be given to her. You see, inside his conscience was still trying to work. It was still yelling at him saying, no, Herod, this is very, very wrong. You know John is a spokesman for God. You know he's a holy man. You know he's a just man. You must overlook your pride here and your reputation before these drunken men. You must see that you have been used by your wicked wife, who shouldn't even be your wife. You must not compound evil with evil. His conscience was still trying to work. Otherwise, he wouldn't have been exceeding sorry. But his troubled conscience was no match for his trapped conscience. It was trapped too strongly, first of all, by passion and now by pride. He was more, and this is the danger we see with our young people and even with ourselves. This is the, one of the number one dangers is that he was more concerned with what his peers might think than with what God would think. His pride and his fear of criticism prevailed over the prompting of his conscience and over any sense of proper justice. And when he nodded to that executioner to proceed with the request, he silenced forever the voice <clears throat> of God in his life. You know, the next time that we hear of Herod Antipas is in Luke 13:32, And he's no longer there afraid that Jesus is John the Baptist resurrected to haunt him because he's he's heard more and more about Jesus and all the miracles Jesus can do and he's really interested in seeing Jesus he wants him to come he wants him to do some of his tricks so he keeps sending people to to, for, to get Jesus but Jesus sends back a message which is this he says you go and tell that fox Behold, I cast out demons and perform cures today and tomorrow, and the third day I reach my goal. And what does that mean? In other words, Jesus was telling Herod Antipas, I have a mission to perform, and I have no time for you, you cunning old fox. And then, you know, the very last biblical time that we hear about Herod Antipas is in Luke 23, verses 8 to 11. And there... Jesus Christ, who he initially feared in that first account that we talked about this morning, is brought before him for judgment. Remember, he was brought to Pontius Pilate. Pontius Pilate was the one who was ruling over Jerusalem. 
But when he found out that Jesus was from Galilee, he sent him to Herod Antipas. He says, oh, well, maybe this will be my way out of dealing with this situation because um, Herod Antipas is the Tetrarch of Galilee. So Jesus was sent over to Herod Antipas. And um, Herod, at this point, has no, seems to have absolutely, well, doesn't have any conscience at all. He has no fear whatsoever of Jesus. Obviously, by now, his conscience is totally seared. Now, this could have been his one last chance to repent. Here he has Jesus standing before him. He's wanted to see him for about a year, and there he finally is in his presence. He could have told Jesus everything. He could have confessed. He could have repented. He could have said, I know I was wrong to marry my brother's wife. I know I was wrong to have so many of my Jewish soldiers killed just for my own lustful purposes. I know I was wrong to have allowed my passion for my stepdaughter to get the better of me and to have John the Baptist beheaded. Please forgive me. And what do you think Jesus would have done? He would have forgiven him. But the scripture tells us that even though he was very glad to finally meet Jesus, it was only because he had a love of entertainment. How many people in the world would rather have be entertained than to, to talk to the Lord Jesus Christ through his word? He loved it. He wanted Jesus to perform some tricks for him. He wanted to see a miracle. And even though He kept asking Jesus questions over and over again. It says he asked Jesus questions. Remember, Jesus even talked to Pontius Pilate. He had a conversation with Pontius Pilate. But when Herod Antipas kept asking him questions, you know what the scripture says? Jesus answered him nothing. Nothing. It is a sad, sad day for a man's soul, for a woman's soul when the living God refuses to speak to him any longer because then his fate is sealed forever. And you know what he even did further to show how seared his conscience was? He allowed his soldiers to mock Jesus. He was the one who had Jesus garbed in a robe and made fun of saying, oh, you're a king? Put that thorn of uh, the crown of thorns on his head and mocked him and slapped him and abused him. Herod was totally seared at this point. There was a time when he would have known that Jesus was a holy and just man and would have feared taking such an action, but no longer. For the folly of a woman, the foolishness of a lustful vow, the fear of his reputation, the fear of criticism from his peers, and for the fear of his throne, he snared his soul forever. Well, we're over time, but do you want to hear the rest of the story? You know, Paul Harvey up in Chicago, how he always says, the, and here's the rest of the story. Do you want to know how they ended? Sweet Mr. Heroic and his bride, Mrs. Heroic. Herodias was not only the source of Herod's sin, but she was the source, ultimately, of his shame. According to history, their ambition got the better of both of them. Now, she had a brother who was Herod Agrippa I, and he was given the title of king, king of Palestine, from 37 to 44 A.D. Herod Agrippa I, her brother, was the man who had James martyred, the first apostle to be martyred. He is also the one who had Peter put in prison 
Remember, but Peter escaped because an angel came and opened the door. That's her brother. <clears throat> well, she wanted to be a queen like her brother was king. So she nagged and she cajoled and she did her old tricks with her husband and finally convinced him that he needed to go to Rome and talk to the Roman emperor to see if he couldn't take her brother's place as king. Well, the problem with that little plan was that her brother had more clout than her husband. Her husband was not in real good standing with Rome because, remember, Rome had to intervene to even save his life when he went foolish war against his ex-father-in-law. So Agrippa had more clout with Rome, and he saw to it that his foolish, ambitious sister and her weak husband were banished to Gaul, G-A-U-L, which was on the Spanish a Spanish frontier. In other words, it was way out in the boonies. And that is where they died in obscurity. They became Mr. and Mrs. Nobody. Salome, the daughter who danced, followed in the footsteps of her wicked mother, and she too married her, one of her uncles. And her, her husband, who was another tetrarch, actually another one of Herod Antipas' brothers. Um, he died an early death, and she became a young window, widow, window, widow, and it is said that she um, died an early, herself an early and a very hideous death. But verse 12, we'll end with this, gives us a far better ending to this very ugly Story Because it tells us that when John's disciples heard of his death, they came to get, a, get his body and give him a decent burial. John the Baptist, did you realize, had a very short career? Very short career. He uh, only preached for one or two years, and that is it. And then he spent one year in prison before he was beheaded. John the Baptist died at the age of 34 years old. Now, some people might say that this demonstrates there's no profit in serving God, you know, to be killed in such an awful way by an immoral, wicked person. But there are things that the human eye, unaided by God the Holy Spirit and the Word of God, cannot see. We're not to feel sorry for John the Baptist. To die is gain, right? For one of God's servants, he got, remember what Jesus said about him? There was no man greater than John the Baptist up to his day. What an epitaph. And for him, he got, as soon as that blade went across his neck, he got an instant trip to eternal glory. And now for over 2,000 years, he's been singing his praises to his, his lamb, his savior, the Lord Jesus Christ. It's not John we're to feel sorry for. It's the Herods of this world who we are to feel sorry for, who we should weep for, whose souls we should be concerned for, like John the Baptist was. Because you know what? When their parties are over, the light is out forever. They're the ones we should feel sorry for. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you so much for the lessons of life that you uh, teach us through your word. We thank you, Father, that you 
have given to us a conscience, and I would pray, Father, if there is one yet today who is resisting the tug of her conscience, of God the Holy Spirit at work trying to convict her, not only maybe that she needs to come to the Savior for eternal life, but maybe a child of yours already who has some sin that she is not willing to put away. God, I pray that she would listen to that inner voice that she would not sear her conscience, that she would repent today and live in fellowship with you. We love you, Jesus. I just pray that you will go with each woman. Use her this week to be salt and light to the many Herods and Herodiases out in this world today. We love you, Lord. Thank you for dying for us. We pray in your name. Amen.